From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. When I was a kid, like scholastic book fair age, I remember being irresistibly fascinated by Lurleen McDaniel. She was a young adult author who wrote books that all had titles like Too Young to Die, Sixteen and Dying, She Died Too Young, Six Months to Live, Time to Let Go, and Letting Go of Lisa. They were about teens with deadly medical conditions, especially cancer, which makes them part of a long literary tradition. Innocent young person stricken with cancer is an enduring storyline. You see it from Love Story, the 1970 bestseller that became a hit movie, up through The Fault in Our Stars, the 2012 bestseller that became a hit movie. I think the reason cancer makes such a popular plot is that it's so totally unambiguous. Cancer is bad. It's a villain that doesn't raise questions of motivation or blame, especially when you're talking about a kid with cancer. It's just terrifying, sad, and unfair. So it's a tragedy with the power to bring people together. Everybody's on the same team in a cancer story, the anti-cancer team. It's scary and painful, but in a certain sense, it's simple. Hannah Combs is a 23-year-old in Trotwood, Ohio, and she has a cancer story. It's been part of her life for almost as long as she can remember. In her case, though, things weren't so simple. In fact, she still doesn't understand everything that happened to her. But recently, she got a chance to talk to someone who could help her figure it out. Anna Silman, a writer at The Cut, was there to see what happened. We are at Nancy's house, and it is adorable. Like, she's at the door ready. She's just really excited. <laughs> Hi! Hello! Hi. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? Oh God, you look beautiful. Thank you. Oh my gosh, this is weird. <laughs> Come on yeah. in. Come on in, please. Nancy and Hannah haven't seen each other for 17 years. It's beautiful. The last time they were together, Hannah was a seven-year-old. And Nancy was trying to help her through a really difficult time in her life. My name is Nancy Franklin, and during the case with Hannah. I was the elementary school counselor at North Elementary. Had you ever counseled a sick kid before? Um, not with cancer, no. Um, we had a couple diabetics. Nancy lays out a stack of manila folders on the dining room table. They're filled with notes she took about how Hannah was doing, copies of medical notes sent in by Hannah's mom, and drawings Hannah did in therapy. I asked you to do a family drawing. And then you said, well, about what? And I said, well, what's something that has happened to you recently that you could draw about? And that's when you said the day we found out I had cancer. That's what you drew about. Okay, so there's me in this little, looks like an orange dress with extremely small legs. And I have a bow (laughs) in my hair. It's a very cute bow. (laughs) Um, And it's like me and my dad's in the middle and my mother. And we're all like sad and crying. Hannah remembers the moment her identity shifted from regular kid to sick kid. I had been playing outside with friends, and I remember actually we were playing hopscotch. I started getting a headache and a sore throat, and remember looking for my mom, and she said she would call and make a doctor's appointment for the next day. They went to the doctor for a checkup. After the appointment, her mother's demeanor changed. 
Hannah remembers her mom, Teresa, frantically calling people. When they got home, a crowd was gathered in the living room. She explained that, you know, they found um, a very small mass, and they thought that it was a um, cancerous tumor. My mom kept talking, and my dad was like, let's go play a game, and, like, picked me up and took me into my room, and he pulled out a board game. You could tell he was, like, fighting back tears, and I remember asking him, like, what's going on, Dad? Like, I don't understand what's going on, and why is everybody upset? And he said to me, like, I think you're very sick. Um, And he tried to explain to me what the word cancer meant. Soon after, Nancy started meeting with Hannah. Mom met with me. She wanted to, she wanted me to speak with you about just the whole process and if what questions you might have had regarding cancer, Uh tumors, and that type of thing. From that point on, Hannah's mom, Teresa, kicked into high gear. Hannah's siblings were much older and were out of the house most of the time, so Teresa had plenty of time to spend with Hannah. She was able to devote 100% of her attention to taking care of her sick kid, and she slipped easily into the role of cancer mom, doing the things you do when you're trying to make the best of an awful situation, like buying Hannah a special wig to cover her bald head. It reminded me of the old, the original Annie movie. Yeah. It was kind of curly and short. I always wanted red hair, so I remember they got me the red wig. Teresa kept a box of medical masks in the center console of her van. She never let Hannah leave the house without one. She made me wear them constantly to um, avoid getting any germs or anything from anybody else. I hated wearing those things so much because I didn't like to be looked at. And I mean, everybody was already staring at me anyways. And that just like emphasized it all the time. And also they were uncomfortable. They like pulled on my ears because I had to wear them around my ears and then when you breathe through them, like, the condensation from your breath, like, it would get, like, you know, damp. And it would, like, be soggy and gross and terrible. So they were just uncomfortable and embarrassing. At church, people whispered the bad news to each other. That Hannah had been diagnosed with central nervous system tumors. And that she was undergoing chemotherapy and radiation. The town sprung into action. Few things can bring people together like a sick child. When you live in a small community, especially in this region... Everybody gets behind that person. They had fundraiser after fundraiser after fundraiser to raise money for the treatment, the cost of the treatment. The school, they had a hat day for you. Hat for Hannah day. Yeah, hat for Hannah. I always wore hats, so they wanted everybody to make me feel like I was super special with my hat. And so they all wore hats, I remember. The community was 100% behind her, and the school was too. Every elementary school did something. Honestly, this sounds terrible, but like there were parts of it that like had its perks. I remember... I got to have my own snacks at school. I loved that. It was great because all the other kids were jealous of my snacks. And I could just say I didn't feel good and I would get to leave school because what kid really enjoys going to school? Being sick suddenly became the most important thing about Hannah. Everyone in their small Ohio community knew Hannah's name. Teresa put donation cans all over town, big empty soup cans with Hannah's picture on them, and signs asking people to chip in, dig into their pockets, and help pay Hannah's medical bills. Everywhere I went, they were there. Like <laughs> They were at the bank, the grocery store. They seemed to, like, be everywhere. What did it feel like to see your face, like, in all the places that you, you know, used to go as a kid? It was overwhelming, and it was kind of, like, it kind of made me sad in a way to think, like, this is basically how everyone perceives me, you know? It was, this isn't really, this isn't really me. I'm not just the sick kid on this soup can. I more than that. 
After the summer, word came that Hannah's prognosis had gotten worse. As Hannah's mom wrote in a letter to the local newspaper, Hannah had also been diagnosed with ALL, a form of leukemia, and the tumor on her brainstem was causing seizures. I don't know how long Hannah can continue to fight, she wrote. Hannah started to think of herself as someone who might die. My dad would always, always comfort me with the thoughts of, um, if you are to pass away, like, you're going to heaven, and heaven's beautiful. And, you know, my dad kind of painted the heaven picture for me. And so I feel like, yeah, heaven was, like, super awesome. But the thought of it was basically thinking I could, like, look through a window and still see my family, but they couldn't, like, talk to me. And I think that's what, like, scared me. I mean, you and I were speaking on a regular basis. It was Tuesdays and Thursdays. And we were just talking, and you were getting more upset with what was happening. And that's when you had more questions about, what does it feel like to die? Um, Am I going to be in pain? Am I going to know when it's happening? You had very detailed questions. And then there was one day I thought, okay, it's time. I'm going to call Make-A-Wish. It was December the 5th at 10 o'clock. I made the phone call to Columbus Children's. And I spoke to the HR person who's in charge of connecting children with Make-A-Wish because that's where your mom said you were being treated. Mm -hmm. So I called them and she said, oh, just a minute and I'll check. So she's going through and she's putting me on hold and I'm listening to wonderful music. (laughs) And after about three or four minutes, I thought, well, this is a long time. She came back to me and she said, what was the last name again? Can you spell that for me? And I even gave her two doctor's names that your mother had given us. And she said, ma'am, we don't have anybody in our patient base with that name, nor do we have doctors with those last names on our campus. I froze, literally froze. So then I hung up the phone and I thought, okay, Nancy, get it together. Let's call Dayton Children's just to make sure. Maybe Mom, you might have been wrong, right? Yeah, I was just crossing, going through, crossing it. every T and dotting every I. So I called Dayton Children's, went through the same thing, and they said, "No, ma'am, no patient here at that time." I said, "Okay, I just wanted to make a referral, but thank you." Uh, hung up the phone. Remember Jeannie Evans, the nurse, school nurse, um, Mrs. Evans no. or Mrs. Forsbach? No. Okay, they were the school nurses at the time. I couldn't even go down the steps. <laughs> I asked them to come upstairs to my office. And they came up, and I explained to them what I had just found out. And Mrs. Evans just kind of froze, and so did Mrs. Forsbach. And we're like, okay, what do we do now? Nancy and Mrs. Evans and Mrs. Forsbach started working backwards, poring over everything Hannah's mother had said about her illness. We started just looking at different notes that Mother had given us. Like comparing? Comparing Mm -hmm. handwriting, comparing um, doctor's signatures. That's when a lot of pieces started to fall in place. The puzzle was getting more complete. After the break, Nancy finishes putting the pieces together. Welcome back to The Cut on Tuesdays. Before the break, Nancy had been counseling Hannah for months about her cancer diagnosis. But when she called the hospital, they had no record of a patient with that name. Nancy went back to look at the notes she'd gotten, Notes that were supposedly from Hannah's doctors. I mean, this is on Pediatric Associates stationery. So she had to take this from their office. Oh, my gosh. Yes, she had to take it from their office. She, um, like, stole those from a hospital? And then she went ahead and forged a doctor's signature. 
If Hannah's story is starting to sound familiar, it's probably because you've seen something like it on TV or in movies. Hannah wasn't a kid with cancer. She was a kid whose mom wanted people to think she had cancer. Hannah was a victim of Munchausen by proxy. It's when a caregiver invents an illness in someone they're looking after. Sometimes they actually make them sick. Sometimes they just pretend they are. In the overwhelming majority of cases, it takes place between a mother and child. And women who engage in Munchausen by proxy abuse are generally skilled liars. Often they have training in the medical field. Hannah's mom did. She'd worked as a nurse's assistant. This was long before shows like The Act and Sharp Objects would turn Munchausen by proxy into one of pop culture's favorite disorders. Nancy had no clue what she was dealing with. I was asking you more detailed questions. And I would ask you, um, what does the hospital look like? You said that you never saw a nurse. Mom would give me a blue pill so I would sleep. Then we would go for chemo or radiation and I would wake up and I would be on the sofa at home. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, I said, when you get your chemo, I said, you should have like a little hole someplace, you know, that they, a port, it's called a port. Mm-hmm. And you knew the terminology. I mean, she groomed you extremely well. Mm-hmm. It was all bandaged up, all covered up. And I said, can I see that? I said, I want you to teach me something. Teach me what a port looks like. I've never seen one before. So... At that point, I had Mrs. Forsbach with me, yeah. the nurse, so I had another person seeing all this. So, you know, you had on like a, a swing top of some sort, because mm-hmm. it was fall, it was still pretty pretty warm out. And we just had to pull it down a little bit, and Mrs. Forsbach removed the bandage. There was nothing. There was no port. I was very frozen. I just couldn't talk for a little bit. I thought, okay, where did I miss this? How stupid of me not to see this happening. Should I have asked more in-depth questions early on? It's not hard to see why Nancy would blame herself. But when someone tells you a kid has cancer, it's not the kind of thing you tend to fact check. And Hannah didn't think to question it either. How was she supposed to know what cancer felt like? Did you ever actually feel actual Um, pain? No. In the beginning, I remember thinking, like, I don't feel like I'm sick, but Mm -hmm. I'm being told that I am, so something must be wrong. And Mm -hmm. But I do remember um, once the medications that she was giving me became Mm -hmm. more frequent, I remember feeling um, more or less not sick, but just, like, very out of it. Like, I remember feeling weak Mm -hmm. and tired and sluggish and Mm -hmm. those types of things. Hannah's memories of that time are kid memories dominated by stuff that would be important to a seven-year-old. We used to go to this ice cream place. It was just like a small Dairy Queen. I liked going there because we would go there every Sunday after church, so it was a very like um, familiar place for me. So we were sitting in the parking lot at the Dairy Queen, and she went in and got me my favorite like slushy, which was this grape slushy, and it was great. And I remember she told me that um, because I was so afraid of the doctor uh, that she was going to give me this medicine that would help me get through it. I would just sleep through the doctor's appointment. And then when I woke up, she would tell me everything that happened. Sometimes she would talk about how big like the tumor was or if they were going to give me new medicine or, you know, sometimes she would just keep it short and simple and just be like, you did a really good job. And the doctor said that, you know, we just have to come back in a couple of weeks and it'll check you. Do you ever actually remember being in a doctor's office? Um, No. I don't. That's because there was no doctor's office and there were no checkups. Hannah's mom was drugging her daughter and then driving her around till she woke up. 
But Hannah was seven years old when this was happening. Easy to trick with a slushie and a sleeping pill. What about the other grown-up in her life? What about her dad? Did you ask at that point if you could come with to an appointment? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Many times. This is Hannah's father, Bob Milbrandt. If I was scheduled to go, say it was in the afternoon, and I would say, okay, I'm going to leave work, and then I'll, I'll, I'll meet you. She would call me 15 minutes before and say they canceled it or so many different scenarios. It's actually a pretty common dynamic in Munchausen by proxy cases. You have a mom who comes across as totally dedicated to her kid, who checks all the super mom boxes, and a dad who's kind of checked out. We were married for almost 10 years, and I'd never had any reason to doubt. You know, she always had an answer to any question that I had. She took care of all of our our finances. Did you ever see any doctor's bills? No. When I grew up, you know, when you are the provider— and they handle the taking care of the kids and the finances and everything when you're not there. So it's, that's one job that I never had to worry about. Hannah's mom, Teresa, paid attention to almost every detail. She had props. She dressed her daughter in baggy clothes to make her look small and weak. She covered her mouth with those soggy surgical masks. She shaved Hannah's head and told her that her hair would fall out soon anyway from chemotherapy. And she told her not to let anyone touch the bandages on her back. Bandages that were supposed to cover her port, which her nurse could use to give her chemo. There was supposed to be a home health nurse come in and administer Hannah's medication. A woman, uh, Beth, they called her. Well, and I'd asked my wife about her and and several times, can I meet her? Or when is she going to be at the house? I would like to meet her. Well, the next night when I came home from work, a stethoscope was laying in my driveway And Teresa says, oh, that must have been Beth's. Had you ever thought that there might not be someone called Beth, like, given the fact that you'd never seen her? No, I hadn't because Hannah actually talked about her. I would ask her questions when I come home, and Hannah would tell me. I was like, okay, you know, I mean, if if you're telling me that, that you know, I believe it. I remember, like, I can sit here and picture a person in my head Like, I could make her up and tell you, like, she had, you know, she was younger and she had short brown hair and she wore, like, typical nurse scrubs. Of course, there had never been a home health nurse. It was just a story that her mom told her. But even now that Hannah knows this, she still has memories of Beth. Uh, It kind of made me feel crazy. (laughs) I kind of remember thinking, like, man, I really thought this person was real. And, like, I can close my eyes and picture this woman, like, and it kind of made me feel, like, I, did I create this person? And it was, it was a lot of, like, chaos in my head for a while. Munchausen by proxy survivors often have problems with something called reality testing. Basically, knowing what's real. After all, our parents are our first narrators, the people who make sense of the world for us. They chart our upbringings in photo albums and keep our medical histories in files. They help us understand who we are until we're old enough to tell our stories on our own. What happens when the story they tell isn't true? Nancy was the first person to realize that the story wasn't true. She met with children's services to tell them what she discovered. And then she just had to wait. The police and the investigators were putting together all their information. It took them a while to get all the pieces to the puzzle that they had to have in place before they pressed charges. So mom continued 
to, you know, take money from people throughout town. And you were watching it all happen. Yeah, and I just had to sit there and be quiet. I couldn't say anything. And I couldn't tell you, you're not dying. Yeah. I couldn't say those words. I couldn't say it. It was only after the police showed up at her house that Hannah found out the truth. She didn't have cancer. She never had. And she barely had time to comprehend that piece of news before she got hit with another blow. She was being taken away from her family and her home to live with strangers. Can you describe what happened when Hannah was taken into foster care? Yeah. Uh, they um, had us go down to the uh, the police department with Hannah. And... and um, They brought a lady out there that they introduced us to us, who she was, and that they felt that um, at this point in time that Hannah should be in foster care until the legal system gets this all straightened out. And uh, so then they took Hannah and escorted her out. And I just stood there and watched. And I clung onto my dad, and I was screaming and crying and begging them not to take me. And he was crying. And he kept telling me, like, it's going to be okay. Like, this isn't going to be forever, I promise. Like, I will come get you, and everything will be fine. She was screaming. She did not want to go. She was wanting her daddy. And I just kept telling her, it'll be all right, honey. I'll get I'll get you soon. I was just extremely pissed off at my wife for what she had done. By the time it was all over, the town had raised thousands of dollars to pay Hannah's non-existent medical bills. They'd thrown spaghetti dinners and hat for Hannah days and put whatever change they could spare into tin cans bearing Hannah's face. News reports from the time say they raised around $31,000. The community couldn't accept that Bob didn't know what was going on with his wife. Neither could the legal system. When Teresa went to prison, so did he. My legal outcome was I spent four years and 11 months in the Ohio State Prison for uh, child endangerment. Do you feel that you did fail to protect her? Personally, yes. I do feel like I failed to protect her. I neglected to figure out what happened with my wife. Do you ever look back now and think, like, how could I have not seen this or known this? Of, of course. Of course. I mean, there was so many things that were obvious, but even even my own family, my side of the family, and some of the people in the church later on, we talked about it, and it was like, she was good. She was good at deceiving you. But a lot of those people who consoled Bob at first... Pretty soon, they were backing away from him, from the whole mess. Once the police department got involved in it, the church just, they scattered. They didn't want anything to do with it. So I had no, I had no support. After Hannah was taken into foster care, everything that she'd known about herself and how to exist in the world and how to get what she needed was gone. When she first arrived at her foster family's house, she tried to apply the rules of her old world to her new one. I remember saying, 
like, oh, I don't feel good because when I was in school, if I said I didn't feel good, that's how I got to go home. So that was my ticket. Like, all right, if I tell this lady I don't feel good, she'll send me home. And she, like, didn't, obviously. Eventually, Hannah went to live with her dad's sister in Pennsylvania. She was completely cut off from the community she grew up in. Hannah talks about the time after she was separated from her parents as the hardest of her life. Overnight, she went from being the cancer kid to being the kid without a family. And she went from being the center of attention to being completely alone. One of the hardest things about Munchausen by proxy cases is that being saved, like Hannah was, generally means being taken away from the person you trusted the most. Plus, if Hannah had really been a cancer survivor, there would have been support groups and colorful ribbons and fundraising walks. But there was none of that. I felt alone. Like, that was, like, the one time in my life I've... I think I could honestly say that I felt the true definition of pure loneliness. Like, I didn't have anyone who understood me or cared about me or loved me, and I was just sad. Hannah's church, her family friends, her school friends, her teachers, they were gone from her life. It seemed like her whole world had disappeared overnight. She didn't realize that through the whole nightmare of foster care, Nancy had been calling, trying to check up on her. Children's services by law have to keep everything confidential. And how often did you think about Hannah's story? A lot. It's been 17 years, so it's probably once a week. Nancy told Hannah that she and the two nurses from the elementary school call or text each other every December 5th, the anniversary of the day they discovered the truth. Hannah couldn't believe that other people cared so much about what she thought had been her burden to bear alone. In fact, until this conversation, Hannah didn't even realize Nancy was the one who uncovered her mom's lies. The whole time Hannah was telling me her story, I'd been struck by how stoic she was. But watching her in this moment, it was like I could see that little kid in the counselor's office, desperate for a grown-up to tell her everything was going to be okay. To think, like, that you were the person, sorry, that, like, took this so seriously and cared so in-depth about me in different ways, but also that you were the person to tell somebody and get me out of that situation. Although going into foster care and all those things were awful, like, I want to, like, personally just, like, tell you thank you for, like, really looking into that and caring about wanting me to be better and have a better life. Like, that really touches my heart, like, a lot. Thank you. Yeah. There, there's oftentimes I'll think, what if I didn't do the make-a-wish? What if I would not have called to do the make-a-wish? That mm -hmm. has crossed my mind. I can't tell you how many times. In 2013, Hannah moved back to the part of Southern Ohio where she grew up. It was a place that had been quarantined in her memories. She says the move was part of an attempt to free herself from the drama of her childhood and write her own story as an adult. Through a phone call with producer Sarah McVie, Hannah's mother, Teresa Milbrandt, said she didn't wish to be interviewed for this story. In their brief conversation, she said she's been living with what she did for 15 years and that she feels regret every single day. She also believes that her daughter is keeping the story in the media to hurt her. Teresa characterized what she did as a result of mental illness. While it's true that Munchausen by proxy is listed in the DSM under the name factitious disorder imposed on another, there's been a lot of dispute about whether it truly is a mental illness in addition to being a form of child abuse. Most experts believe it's both that while people with Munchausen by proxy are mentally ill, that shouldn't be considered a legal defense for what they do. 
Now, Hannah's 23 years old. Last year, she got married, and now she's seven months pregnant. She's looking forward to becoming a mom, a totally different kind of mom than the one who raised her. And she says she's glad that her own toxic mother will have no involvement in her son's life. And yet, since she moved back to Ohio, Hannah has seen her mom everywhere. This isn't a figure of speech. Her mom's out of prison now, and they run into each other, on the street, in the grocery checkout line. It's like something out of dream logic. A few years ago, her mother came by the restaurant where Hannah worked and asked to speak to her. Hannah told her to leave. She said she didn't want to see her. But they're still orbiting each other, unable to escape each other's magnetic pull. I'll be in the grocery store, and I'll see her walk past, like, the same lane, and I'll just, like, turn my cart around and go the other way, you know, just pretend like I didn't see her. Like, a couple weeks ago, I was in Big Lots, and I was with my sister Morgan and my husband, and we walked in, and I was so focused on my nieces because they were doing something cute, and I was just so focused on them. And my sister kept turning around and looking at me, and I was like, what are you looking at? Like, what? I was like, what's happening? And she's like, did you just see who we walked past? And I was like... No, but when I turned around, I saw her back and I was like, oh my gosh, like I don't even recognize her at this point. Like at this point, like she's just like a stranger. Hannah isn't the only victim of her mother's deceptions. When the truth was uncovered, everyone in the community who'd lent their money or support to Hannah realized they had been duped. Munchausen exposes our deepest vulnerabilities. It plays on our best impulses, altruism, trust, sympathy, care for others. When people find out they've been betrayed, many of them swing hard in the other direction. It can tear families and communities apart. It was such a random act of human terrorism. I mean, what did you see happen in the community after that? Um, There were people that were in disbelief uh, that it was even a true story. There were people that would probably, uh, if you could still go after somebody as they did in ancient times. You had people that were ready to do that. Um, we were we were upset, we were hurt, we were crushed, whatever description you want to put on it. Um, but it was really hard for the community to come back and, and uh, trust again. People who are deceived by Munchausen cases often beat themselves up for believing the lie, telling themselves they'll never be played for a fool again. But what's the alternative? turning a cold shoulder to the kid with cancer on the rare chance her mother's a master of deception, trading your empathy for cynicism. The freaky thing about a case like Hannah's is that it makes us question everything that's best in ourselves. Nancy says from that day on, she approached her work in a whole new light. Bottom line, unless I see a document by authorization agencies, I don't don't believe a word they say. And that's sounds very cold, but I'm not, it's not true until I see it in, in print. I feel like I have always had very good gut feelings about people. Uh, she was the exception. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday, when Stella Bugby will be filling in as your guest host. We're also planning an episode about couples and money, and we want to hear from you. What is the money fight that you and your partner keep having? Has one of you irrationally avoided setting up auto pay? Does your partner refuse to spend more than $25 on a pair of pants and can't see why you would either? Give us a call and tell us all about it. 920-368-3341. Again, 920-368-3341.
The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Natt. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby and Lynn Levy. Mixing is by Emma Munger and Peter Leonard. Our music is by Emma Munger and Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvan Esso. That's Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra Souser-Monik. Fact-checking is by Stephen Cohen. Special thanks to Mark Feldman and Tanner Combs. If you want to support The Cut's work on and off the mic, you can do that by subscribing to nymag.com. Just go to thecut.com slash subscribe. That's thecut.com slash subscribe. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.